0: Well, can you join me, if you will, in First Timothy chapter 3? Um, I, I knew going into this series, the pastors of our church knew, that one of the risks is that this series to some, in particular those who might be critical or skeptical about the church, would feel nothing different than an infomercial. That week after week, you hear all these benefits without tackling the tough issues that uh, are legitimate about why some people have opted out of the church. Um, I want to make sure that our conversation is grounded in the reality of the moment that we live in. And so, um, this morning I opened with a research report that I came across earlier this week that gripped my heart so much so that I've been reading about it, praying about it, discussing this with others. And it comes from a research um, firm out of Nashville that focuses in on uh, the evangelical church movement, if you will, Uh, Christians uh, who would uh, identify themselves that way primarily, uh, called LifeWay, LifeWay Research. Uh, They picked up some of the um, work that the Gallup polling uh, group had done. And here's the headline for the report. It says, Public Trust in Pastors falls to historic low. Public trust in pastors falls to historic low. That hit me hard. I got personal invested interest in an article like this. And what it does is it ranks professions that are that are trusted in our Uh, country and our culture uh, from greatest to least. So big shout out if you're a nurse because you rank the highest. We trust nurses more than we trust just about anybody else. Also, big shout out to elementary school teachers. Our country trusts elementary school teachers and the military. Can we give it up for the military? Our, Our country trusts them. Now, you'll be happy to know that pastors did rank a little bit higher than telemarketers. <laughs> Not kidding, used car sales people, and if you're selling cars, God bless you, and Congress. I just want you to know those are the three groups. Those are the three groups that we we beat, just in case you were worried. But here's, the, here, here's what Aaron Earls writes in this article. Trust in pastors fell for the third straight year and reached an all-time low, around 1 in 3 Americans, 34%, rate the honesty and ethical standards of clergy as high or very high, only 34% do, that means that 66% say no, their honesty and their ethical standards are low, according to the latest Gallup survey. This has been a consistent decline that we've seen in uh, how people feel that they can trust pastors. So part of what I've been asking of friends and colleagues, I even dedicated one day to this on my radio program, is, is what has caused this? What can repair it? And I think among the myriad of things that I've heard, one of the things that has become really pronounced to me is that somewhere along the way, we exchange the qualifications that have been given to us in Scripture for what characteristics a spiritual leader must have for those that are more aptly fit for our culture. And I think that what we're going to see today is a reminder to us that at our core, at the core of the calling to be a leader in God's church, at the core of that... um, That noble calling, as scripture is gonna refer to it, is a man or woman whose life is shaped and centered upon Christ and evidenced through the fruit of the Spirit. A big idea is that one of the biggest benefits for being a member of the church is that the church is cared for by qualified and faithful leaders. If we do it right, that you have leaders in your life that are caring for your soul, and we all need that. This morning on the way in the church, I had the privilege of being able to pray with a couple of families that are going through different things, some health, some family issues, some financial, and just praying for them, trying my best to care for them. And it was a reminder to me of the moments when I have received care from church leadership, that we, as we traverse through a fallen world, need the care that comes from leaders who know the word well and can remind us of the promises of of Christ, that can help us to understand the working of the spirit, not just in our mountaintop moments, but as David said, even when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we need those type of leaders in the church And Paul anticipates this as he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy. We pick up in chapter 3 of Timothy, coming out of chapter 2, where we examine public worship, and we examine the type of men and women we should be, now that the gospel has come to us, what Paul wants Timothy to know as he establishes this church in the city, the ancient city of Ephesus, is that every church, if it's going to be sustainable, not only surviving, but thriving, has to do so on the shoulders of of qualified and faithful leaders, with Christ being the foundation. Look with me, if you will, uh, at verse number one. Now read through uh, verse number 13. He says here, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up and conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Goes on to talk about a second office here, deacons. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mysteries, the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also, turning the page, gain confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus." This is quite the list. And I'm gonna be honest with you, as someone who is in church leadership, this uh, is, is really overwhelming. Every time I read this list, it is overwhelming to my soul. I am reminded of the impossible call it is to be a church leader. No one can measure up to this. No one can measure up to this. So I got to give you my first observation here before we get into all the wonderful points that Paul makes here. My first observation is if you're going to read this right, it has to be read through the lens of the gospel. You cannot read this from a horizontal perspective. You could only read this right from a vertical perspective. What do I mean by that? The weight of this passage to me is summed up in one word, it is the last word of verse number 10. Look back at your verse number 10. The last word, and I know we have a few different translations here among us, but most of you will have the same last word. Uh, somebody shouted out, What is the last word of verse number 10? Blameless. blameless. Now, when was the last time you met somebody blameless? <clears throat> like, Paul just gave a list of qualities, and verse number 10 ends, and oh, by the way, he has to be blameless. Well, I'm disqualified, and so is everybody here except for Jesus, right? So how do I read this properly? I have to read it through the lens of the gospel, which Paul sums up this way. I want you to keep your finger there. Go to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Look with me to verse number 8. This is the grounding, friends of how we understand not only our salvation, but our calling in Christ, our growth in Christ. He says this, for by grace you have been saved. For by what? For by what? How many thank God for grace? How many thank God for grace? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast now go back to paul's list in first timothy what he's not doing is trying to give us a list of things that somehow we can just through human effort do better try harderism produce within ourselves what paul is saying to timothy is as you look out among the men of your church, and you're looking for overseers, as you look out among the men and women of your church, and you're looking for deacons and deaconesses, as you're looking out for church leaders, look for the work of the Spirit in the lives of men and women that is producing these qualities. Now, the Spirit is the only one that can produce this within you and me. And Paul breaks these down into four different qualities or attributes that a leader must have. But I have to say a word about what's not here. There's not much here about um, skills. Much of what's here has to do with the substance of a person's character. As a matter of fact, the only thing I can see here that could be in the category of skills that a person needs in order to be a church leader is they must be able to teach. And what Paul means here is not just standing before a large group of people, but even in a one-on-one relationship, they have to know the gospel and the scriptures well enough to convey it to another person to help them to grow in Christ and have the foundation of the scriptures, of the gospel, of the testimony of Jesus deeply rooted in their heart and lives. Beyond that, all of this centers on the character of the person, Notice what's not here. Notice that it didn't say uh, all church leaders must have an MBA from a top business school. Notice it didn't say that, hey, the best church leaders have to have mastered executive leadership. Not bad if you have all good qualities, but those are extras and add-ons. If you don't have these things, those things matter not. Notice he didn't say that they had to have some level of, of, of uh, popularity, like a thousand Facebook followers. Wouldn't that have been, been cool if, if Paul said, hey, uh, every church leader has to have at least a thousand Facebook followers, right? He didn't say any of those things. What he did say is the working of the Spirit by the grace of God needs to be evident in their lives. like a Abundantly evident to the watching world outsiders and to the church family I should never have to bring a leader up and everybody looks at themselves and says now I'm shocked that that person was chosen There should be a sense of oh, that's clear to me their lives their fruitfulness. It's clear Paul gives us four things that a church leader must have as characteristics in their lives. First, church leaders have to have control over their appetites. Look at verses one, two, and three. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Uh, First off, that word overseer in the Greek is episkopos. It can be translated overseer. It could be translated as well, elder. It's also the same, used interchangeably with how Paul describes the office of pastor. So, pastor, elder, overseer, and 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 another word in the Greek, presbytos, which were, which which means bishop. Those are all interchangeable terms throughout the New Testament when you encounter them. They're all interchangeable terms. As a matter of fact, uh, this passage here only identifies two offices in the church formally, which is the overseers or elders, pastors, elder pastors in the church, and then the deacon, deaconesses of the church. These are only two offices that Paul is is referring to here. and He gives these qualities. But notice what the first thing he says is, is that to aspire to that is a noble thing. It's a noble task to serve the Lord and the local church with your time, talent, and treasure. There are certain people that I am convinced could have excelled in anything they did. I love Pastor Doug and uh, I look at his life and I say, Pastor Doug is one of those people that I'm convinced could have excelled in just about anything that he put his mind to. Wisdom, ingenuity, work ethic, all of those things were there. You know, uh, foresight, all of it. Praise God that something happened in his life that caused him to say, God, with these abilities, these talents, these giftings, these graces that you've given me, I want to serve your local church. I want to care for the people of God through the local church. And I pray that there will be a group of godly men in here that will say that. That will say, Lord, you have blessed me maybe with an analytical mind. You have blessed me with artistic abilities. Maybe you have blessed me with business acumen, whatever the case you may be. But I pray that there will be those within your heart that would see serving and caring for God's people as a noble task. You can be a Christian and serve God in many different ways. I pray that we would have Christians in the boardroom, in the classroom, in the halls of government, in media. I pray that to be so. But I pray wherever you are that there would also be a heart that pants Lord, I want to be used by you to care for, to mature, to grow, to nurture your local church. Paul said, That's noble. There's something that is noble at working you, there is nobility at working you. The grace of God, when it manifests itself that way, is evidenced in your life. Every report that I read, just about every report that I read, forecasts that in the decades to come, the church will experience a shortfall of leaders. That there will be more churches than pastors. Maybe you never encountered that before. But even this past summer, me and my wife uh, traveling abroad, meeting believers in villages that, that have either through the work of the evangelists or men and women sharing their faith, uh, 20, 30 believers that are gathered together praying that God would send them a pastor to shepherd the church so that it might grow. We need to not only be praying that there will be a move in the hearts of godly men across this nation and the world, but we need to be instilling that noble passion in the hearts of the next generation as well. I was, last night, my, my youngest son, Judah, um, he's such a, a sweet kid, so sweet. As a matter of fact, I told my wife, we need to be nice to this one. He's the one that's gonna care for us when we get old. <laughs> this is the one we need to hook up. But I digress. But this, my son says to me, Dad, I want to help you with your sermon. I'm like, okay, sweet, let's talk about it, right? This is what I am talking talk about. And what becomes clear after about five minutes of talking to him, the fruit of the Spirit is just so evident in Judah's life. And I don't say this for you to put pressure on him. He's still a kid, nine years old, right? Still going to do things. But but it's clear to me the fruit of the Spirit is in this life. And I said to him yesterday, Son, your superpower is the fruit of the Spirit. So clear in your life. And other people will have other great strengths and abilities, but yours is that you love God and, and you're not even working at it. But the love, the joy, the peace, the gentleness, the goodness, the grace, all of that is evident in your life. And I'm convinced that one day you're going to grow up and serve a local church well. As your father, I'm convinced of that and I'm praying for that for you, however it may be. We need to instill this in the next generation, amen? So it's a noble thing. But you gotta control your appetites. Notice what he says about these overseers. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That means that uh, not... Not, not so much that they're, they're perfect, but they can withstand accusation. Paul says accusations will be thrown their way, thrown your way, but you've got to live in a way that if your life is examined, you can withstand it. They, they accuse Jesus of a myriad of things. They, they accuse Paul. They accuse John the Baptist. You will be accused of various things at various times. You cannot control that. But may you live in a way, by God's grace, that you can withstand the accusation when it comes and he goes on to say that if you are going to live in that way it will be marked by you being the husband of one wife self-minded, self control respectable hospitable able to teach not a drunkard not violent but gentle not quarrelsome not a lover of money he lists all these qualities let me just identify 3 of them really quick for you uh, and here's what Paul is saying Don't live, don't buy into the lie of the culture, do not live a limitless life. A week ago, I was invited to speak to one of the most exciting groups in our church. It is our Leadership Institute, and it's a a ministry you've through your generosity, help us to fund where we get a chance to train young men and women, primarily in their 20s, for for the future of church leadership. Some of them will serve in the local church here. Some have committed their lives to serving globally, but all of them going through a year or two of preparation in that process. And so I got a a chance to come talk to them, and I talked to them about the life, the limitless life. If you were to read and listen to and watch the films, movies, music of our culture, the message is, is that freedom, the ultimate ethic, the ultimate goal is to get to a place where you have a life without limits. But that's foolishness. From the very beginning of scripture, we encounter two things, God's liberty, expressed through his generosity, and God's limitations. He says to Adam and Eve, of all the trees of the garden, you may fully, freely eat, but of this one, don't touch it, which tells me his liberties are great and vast, his limitations are few but important, and we got to embrace those. One of the greatest gifts he gives to us are limitations on our life. Imagine the wreck my life would be if I had entertainment without limits, Imagine the state of my life if I had work without limits, no rest. Imagine the state of my money if I had financial spending without limits. So it's a lie to think that the limitless life is the goal. No, we want to live with limits and celebrate those limits, right? And so there's some limits that he puts here. Number one, one life, you can't go sleeping around. And the church said... Amen, that's not like a hard part of the quiz. (laughs) Get married, be faithful, and the church said, now, these are going to be the areas where Satan will try to tempt you in. But you got to embrace limits. He comes to Jesus and he says, turn the stones into bread, just eat, don't fast. He comes to Eve and says, did God really say? He's going to constantly come to you and tempt you to break limits. But blessed is a man or a woman who embraces these limits. Not a drunkard. Not a prohibition is not against the consumption of all alcohol. Now, I grew up in a community in which I saw alcohol massively abused. And so I made a decision early on that I'm not going to do that. I don't want to consume alcohol. That was a personal choice. But the prohibition here is against drunkenness, the excess of alcohol. He says, you can't live that way and be a leader in the church. Then he says, what money the, the prohibition here is not against the accumulation of wealth and money through your hard work, your ingenuity, a good stewardship. That's not the prohibition. But the prohibition is the love of money in excess. When the priority of the love of money exceeds loving God and loving people, you can't lead his church that way. And so these appetites that we all have have to be brought under control of Christ. And so before communion, when we say examine your heart, what you should be looking at is, man, what areas of my life have not yet come under the conformity of Jesus? And if as I preach or as we sang today, there are certain parts of your life that you find the sting of shame rising up or maybe you feel like, man, I'm out of whack here. Just know this. What we all have in common is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what we all should be doing is praying, Lord, please apply your lordship to this area of my life. Bring it into conformity to your will. I can't do it through effort. Uh, try harder. Do betterism. I can't do it. But your grace that saved me can also sanctify me. How many thank God for his truth? Amen. A couple more. Church leaders also have to have a grace in their relationships. This may be a surprise to you, but if you're gonna be a church leader, you gotta like people. (laughs) There's a lot of folks that's in this room that might say, "Um, man, I love Jesus, I just don't like (laughs) y'all. That just won't work, I'm sorry, I didn't make the rules. Look at what it says, verse number 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slander not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things, going back up to verses two and three. You see a couple of qualities like hospitable and not quarrelsome. This word hospitable is, in the Greek is philoxenos, lover of strangers. I often mention Greek or Hebrew words for for two reasons, one is for us to make, be aware that um, scripture doesn't come to us primarily in English, it comes to us primarily Old Testament Hebrew, also a little bit of an ancient language called Aramaic, New Testament Greek, so it's been translated to English so we can read it. But there's a second reason why I do that, it's because the first task of the Bible reader is to recognize that though the word of God is timeless, it was written in time, to a particular group of people, an original audience, and before we ask ourselves what does it mean to us here and now, we need to ask ourselves if we're gonna be faithful, what did it mean to them then and there? So how would they have read this that Paul wrote? They would have read it as a lover of strangers, that a church leader can't form cliques that are so tight that if a stranger walks through the door they feel like there's no way I could be assimilated into that group. That if God, by his grace, chooses to to save people that are outside of our cultural context and bring them in, that we too would be able to wrap them in the arms of love and let them know that as they have professed faith in Christ, that there is a seat at the table for them. The opposite of that, maybe you've heard this term before, xenophobia. Xenophobia which is a fear of strangers that produces hatred or resistance, we can't be xenophobic. We have to have philozenos. The word philo meaning love. That's why we call Philadelphia the city of brotherly love. Loving strangers. And this should be so evident that even outsiders see us as loving. Not known primarily for what we hate, Those whom we are against, but known primarily as a lover of people, and even if we don't agree with them, longing to see the same mercy and grace that saved us at work in their lives. This is why the Bible tells us we must pray for our enemies. Paul tells us not to be quarrelsome as well. Now, this is how you know Paul wrote pre-Twitter, is because if he wrote after Twitter, he would have said, stay off social media. But he wrote before Twitter, but you gotta understand the internet and social media is designed to produce rage within us. You can just test it out. Wake up happy, go to social media, I promise you in five minutes you'll have four people to be mad at and three issues to be outraged about. It's just the way it works. So protect and guard your heart. Don't become a quarrelsome person. Doesn't mean we don't stand up for what is right, it just means that our disposition is not contentious, we work towards reconciliation. This is what separates us from the culture. Our desire is not just to cancel the bad actors. Our desire is yes to highlight sin, but to also introduce them to a pathway of redemption whereby which they might be redeemed through repentance and reconciled to Jesus and fruitful for Christ in the world. I don't want you to just be in a corner with a dunce hat on and and identified as the bad guy. I want you you to feel the weight of your sin so you cry out to a savior what must I do to be saved just as all of us had to do and that the outpouring of his grace will produce such a gratitude in your life that you say I surrender all to you for all that you've done for me I want to serve you how many would love to see that in our culture Paul talks to uh, deacons. Now, the overseers were called to the pastors, the elders, and we have such a great group of elders and pastors in our church. If you're an elder or pastor here, I just want to say thank you for leading our church, for shepherding my own soul and my family. They lead primarily spiritually, spiritually leading the church. The, uh, The deacons and deaconesses support them through a myriad of practical works. The third thing that he says here is that church leaders have leadership in their home. He says something that's gonna cause all of us with kids to uh, maybe choke up a little bit. He says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. If you got teenagers, you laughed at that one. What is this saying? Well, I think what it's saying is that before I can apply the gospel to you or to the world, I need to make sure I'm applying it to my home. That the first call of spiritual leadership in my life is to make sure I'm leading in my home. I can't be so concerned about public ministry that I'm overlooking my home. But it does not mean that my children, especially as they grow, won't have their own will. As much as my prayer is that they will serve the Lord, they do have to choose Christ, and they can choose to rebel against Christ, but may it never be said by them that the reason why I chose to rebel against Christ was because of my parents' hypocrisy in the gospel. Hopefully, what they'll be able to say is that mom and dad to the best of their ability, love Jesus, pray for us, modeled the word, tried to reinforce the word in our heart, taught us the word. Hopefully, they will have a love for God in their hearts that will desire that, that will cause them to desire to follow Him. But my job is to be found faithful. That's your job as well. Our prayer should be: Lord, help me not to be a public success, while my private life is in shambles. And if we find that that is the case, it is okay to say for a season, I wanna pause public ministry so that I can care for my home. That is right, that is good. And whenever I see a person do that, I commend them for the courage and faith to do that. Listen, we all may have seasons where that may happen. and We do it in a concert of community, never alone. But as we do, follow Christ in that way I believe it ministers something to uh, the rest of the body that we can apply the grace of God, the word of God, the gospel in our homes, and our families first, and then to the world, finally. Leaders have to have maturity in their faith. Notice what it says in verse number six, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There are many times, there have been times when somebody comes, says I'm new to the church, and then they break out their resume and they tell me how gifted they are, so where do you wanna use me? To which my response is, be faithful in just attending. Just come and be a part of the body. Let me watch your lifestyle. As impressive as all your corporate successes may have been, praise God for that. Your educational accolades, those things are wonderful. It's not how it works in the household of God. We don't come in as superstars. There's only one superstar. How many know that? There's only one main character. All of us are supporting actors at best. There's only one main character. His name is? There's only one superstar. His name is? All the rest of us fall prostrate before before him. All the rest of us simply come to serve him. And leaders are not novice, but they're people who have been so fruitful that when they stand before you, hopefully you say, yeah, that makes sense that they're a leader because I've seen the fruitfulness of their lives. I just want to say this as I close in prayer and we'll close in worship. We have been blessed extraordinarily here at Woodside with a group of men and women, elders, deacons and deaconesses who serve you faithfully. Some of them are in the lobby today. As you exit, maybe shake their hand, say thank you for serving the church. Pray for your leaders and pray that God would give you a desire to serve the church as well. Let's stand. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would be at work in our lives, that you would draw us to yourself and that you would help us to live for you. Lord, bless us to be a church that has the grace and the giftings of leaders who love you and love those who you are saving. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family head to woodsidebible.org/connect to introduce yourself today.